Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, there's a lot to talk about today, and um, the sort of the themes that we're going to discuss are are miracles uh, versus uh, effort, and the interesting combination, the interesting uh, uh, way that Hashem uh, balances uh, the revelation of miracles um, <clears throat> with with sort of this. Um, this aspect of throwing the ball back into our court, um, sometimes in, in surprising ways that, that we don't uh, necessarily associate with miracles. And I'll, I'll be more specific and give you some, some uh, examples of that in a moment. And also, to connect it to this whole idea of the Mitzorah. The Mitzorah, that's a, that's a Hebrew word, um, which is someone who has this um, condition called saras, Saras is translated in English as leprosy, but it, it's not really leprosy. But it is this kind of like this white discoloration of the skin. And it was actually a physical manifestation of a spiritual malady. Meaning to say that if someone um, spoke Lashon Hara, meaning if they um, misused speech, uh, gossip or you know slander, th- things like this, that they, they could get um, this condition called saras. And that either manifested themselves on a person's body or on their clothing or on the walls of their home. And it would have to be treated. And interestingly, one of the, one of the ways it would be cured, um, the person would be purified of this condition, is they would have to be isolated outside the camp. So meaning to say... Um, that they had to be all alone for a period of time, for a few days. And I heard Reb Shlomo say something very, very beautiful about that aspect of, the, of this tikkun, of this healing aspect of, um, of healing the person who, who speaks ill of others. Why would it be that that person would have to be isolated, right, all alone? And, um, and Reb Shlomo said some, just like, it's such a very deep insight into a person's psychology as to why they would ever um, speak ill about another person or what the sort of the more uh, deeper motivations are. And he said that when someone speaks ill about someone else, what they're trying to do is to take away that person's friends. A very heartbreaking kind of insight that when you say something bad about someone else, you're trying to take away their friends. And so, as a result, there's something called a mita keneged mita, that there's sort of like a tit-for-tat, it's where you have to be alone. And you say, okay, you want to take a person away that person's friends? Look what it's like to be all alone. You like being all alone? No? Okay. So then don't do that, don't try to do that to other people. So, that's a very... Very remarkable insight, because I think that most people, if you ask them, why are you saying this bad thing about another person, they, the last thing they'll tell you is, I'm trying to take away their friends. They, they certainly don't have insight into it. But this is, why, this is why it's so important to learn Torah and to study the words of, of great sages, because they have insights into our, our motivations that we'll never arrive at. Um, and then once you see that, you feel the truth of it, and then you can you have the ability to change uh, 
your own behavior. And, you know, as my dad, Olav Shalom, would say all the time, a person can't change unless they have insight. And so, so, so the Torah is filled with remarkable insights into how we are and why we are and, and all sorts of things. And that becomes the gateway to, to, to fantastic transformation. Okay, so now let's approach this, this word, this, the, the Mitzorah, again, the one who has spoken badly. Um, let's, let's look at this word uh, again. And this is an insight that I heard in the name of the Chedush Arim, the first uh, Ger Rebbe, one of the greatest of the Hasidic masters. And this word, Mitzora, can be broken down into two parts, Mitzor, and the last letter is um, Ayin. So, Mitzor, Ayin. Okay, now, just, just so you know, uh, Mitzor is like, would have the root... Um, like Tsar, like Mitzrayim, which is narrow, right? Um, the, and, and then the last letter, Ayin, Ayin is a very interesting letter in the Hebrew alphabet because Ayin is not just the name of a letter, it's also um, a Hebrew word. Ayin means I, E-Y-E. Um, and so Mitzora is someone who has, if you break it up into these parts, the Chidush Rim says, Mitzorah is someone who has a very narrow eye, right? Narrow ayin, right? Ayin means not just the letter, but the word eye, E-Y-E. So a narrow eye, which is like a bad eye. That's like a, a bad eye. So bad meaning not in the sense of um, poor vision, but Ill, Ill, Ill intent. So what is... What is this idea of a, a narrow eye? You see, in Pirkei Avos, it says that you shouldn't judge another person uh, or, or that you have to look at the, the whole person. And this is a real art form and this is something that everyone has to train themselves in, which is trying not just to, well, trying a not to judge other people because Hashem it says, is the one true judge. Meaning, Hashem is the, the, the only one who really knows. And that's not a mystical or a religious thought. If you think of it in, in, a, in a practical way, you realize just how utterly true it is. Um, because can you imagine you, can you, imagine you, you are called before a judge in a secular court for an offense? And, you know, maybe you did it, but maybe there are overwhelming uh, uh, aspects which the judge should absolutely consider as part of your claim. Now imagine that none of those things are allowed into court. And it's sort of like, well, wait a second, maybe, maybe I ran through the red light. Maybe I really did. And maybe you did really photograph it, and there's my license plate, and there's the video of me running the red light. But imagine there's a pregnant woman about to give birth in my car and I'm speeding to the hospital and they don't allow you to enter that as part of your claim. Would you feel that that's fair? That's grossly unfair. It's grossly unfair. There isn't a judge in the world that would convict you even though you did run the red light if they knew that there was a woman about to give birth in your car that you had to save her life and get her to the hospital. 
So, so the thing is, is that when, when we judge another person, we don't know all of these other pieces of information that go into why the person did what they did. And when we say that Hashem is the one true judge, it means that Hashem is the only one who knows what that person was thinking, who knows what that person's childhood was, who knows what pressures the person was under at that moment. It's not like, okay, well, a lot of people know, also Hashem knows. No, Hashem is literally the only one who has all of the evidence before him. So if you want to judge another person, you are not taking into account all the information. This is called a narrow eye. Do you understand? Because when you narrow your eye into slits, what you do is you cut off large parts of the picture. You see? So this is what a bad eye is. It's a narrow eye. It's only looking at part of the person's circumstance and not at the entirety of what's going on. You see, now a lot of people have a bad eye, a mitzor, a mitzor ayin, for life and for the world. Because they only see, they look at the world, but they're looking at a very small part of the world and they're making very comprehensive, very emphatic judgments based on a very narrow understanding of what's going on. I heard Rabbi Shlomo give this example that, uh, that this world is like you're looking through a, a, like a keyhole and you see like someone is raising a knife over someone else's stomach. They're gonna, it's a murder that's about to take place. And meanwhile, what's going on is it's, you're looking into an operating room and it's a doctor saving the life of a patient. But if you only see, like, the, the knife going into the flesh, what do you know? And that's this world. When we look at this world, we're seeing the tiniest piece of what's going on in terms of reality. You know, we believe, Jews, we believe in reincarnation. There are other lifetimes. There are, you know, there are future generations and perhaps future lifetimes. We, we have... No idea of the, the vast canvas that, that we're the tiniest in the, in the middle of. And I heard Rabbi Teller say something very beautiful. He has a, a, a mantra of sorts, uh, which he, he, he calls it Act Two. Act Two. So I don't know if you've ever had this experience if you turn on a TV show uh, in the middle. And, you know, there are all these jokes that, you know, at least the laugh track finds hysterical, and you have no idea what's going on, because you missed the beginning of the episode, so you don't know what, you don't know what, why this is funny, you know? So, so a lot of times, like, you know, if someone acts in a really weird way, there's a, there's a first act to their behavior that you weren't in the audience for. So, so you're walking in, when you see them behave strangely, you're walking in in the middle of their production. And so Rabbi Teller says, this is, he says to himself, act two, act two. He has to remind himself that what he's seeing right now is the middle of the story, not the beginning of the story. And that's a way of giving the person the benefit of the doubt. 
And interestingly, Rabbi Nachman of Breslov says that when you give someone else the benefit of the doubt, you bring peace into the world. That's a, it's a very great thing to do because, you see, if you give them the benefit of the doubt, then, then you're not compelled to, to tell someone else what this person's behavior is. Once you say that, then you create a whole chain reaction of, of who knows what, of gossip, of all, all sorts of things. And you derail the entire, and then you think of the other person more favorably also. You derail all sorts of mechanics if you can just, in the moment, give the person the benefit of the doubt. And so, quite literally, you bring peace into the world. It's not just a mystical idea. You actually are stopping arguments from happening just by judging the person favorably. Um, But this idea of the one who sees narrowly the mitzorah, mitzor ayin, with a a narrow eye, you're just seeing part of what's going on. So I want to go into this idea now more deeply. So the the haftorah, the, from from it says here Malachim uh, Beis. That's uh, uh, in English we would say the the, the book of Kings two, uh, chapter seven, verse three through twenty. Tells one of the most, um, for me, one of the most remarkable stories that I know of in uh, in Tanakh, uh, and it, it concerns four mitzorim. Uh, four people who are afflicted with saras, this condition that we were talking about, and they were outside of the camp, and and it, it turns out that, you know, you talk about being at the right place at the right time, because you would imagine if you you have saras, you're kind of kicked out of the community for a period of time. This is is a hard place to be. At the same time, though, look how precisely God runs the world, and 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 just like guides all sorts of different events. The reason why I say it was beneficial for them to be kicked out of the camp at this moment is because inside the camp, there was a siege taking place. The Jewish people were being attacked by the, um, by the uh, Arameans and Amram, uh, uh, no, the, yeah, anyway, the Arameans, and they, it was really bad. So, so it was officially a siege. Um, so that's a technical term, military term. What that means is when you surround a city and you cut off all the supplies to the city. And this is a, you know, a, an ancient form of warfare. I, I guess it's, it's still done. Um, but the idea is either you starve the inhabitants to death, and um, so that's one way to uh, ensure a military victory, or the people become so weakened that they can't fight you anymore. And so you just kind of roll in and, you know, you've got a, a very weak army there. So, so, so if you can, if you, you know, militarily speaking, if you can pull off a siege, it's, it's, it's a good deal, you know. It's, it's a way of really ensuring victory. Uh, unfortunately, we were the victims of this siege, so we were on the wrong end of the siege, and, and people were really starving. And so much so that the idea, the price of, um, the price of uh, barley, um, the, the price of food 
you can imagine, in a, in a city that's being besieged, was astronomical. Like, can you imagine what a loaf of bread would cost in, in, a, in, in, a, in a situation like this? Like, you would give your, like your diamond necklace for, for a, a loaf of bread, right? So, so, um, so the prophet Elisha says, you know something? Tomorrow, you're going to be able to get all the food that you want for pennies. And the captain of the guard there by the gate says, what are you talking about? This is like ridiculous. You know, like, what are you talking about? So, but Alicia says, you know something? Not only is it going to happen, but you're not even going to live to see it. So that, that sounds like, that sounds pretty strong. Okay, now cut to the Mitzorim, the four Mitzorim who are outside the camp. Now Hashem makes this miracle. Uh, but it's a really interesting miracle, and I want to get into the mechanics of this, because this is, this is going to open up, hopefully, uh, insights into how we have to guide our lives and, 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 and how God sort of conducts human affairs, okay? So this, this miracle that Hashem made was, I actually heard this described in uh, psychological terms, as that, that clinically speaking, this is called an auditory hallucination, meaning to say that you hear things, okay? So what God made happen was he made this thunderous noise of chariots and horses resound so loudly that the Aramean army thought that we had made a secret deal with the Egyptians and hired like tons of mercenaries to charge in and to just completely surprise the Arameans and to, and to just wipe them out. And they got so terrified. Meanwhile, there was nothing there. Nothing was going on. It was just this loud noise that Hashem made. That he so terrified them that on the spot, they just picked up and they ran. They deserted their entire camp. It was a major encampment with tons of food and tons of supplies. Right? Now, now these four Mitzorim, the four who were afflicted, were starving to death, right? Because they didn't even have any food in the city. Now they're outside the city. For sure they've got nothing. And they, they, they're speaking with each other. And they say, you know something? Look, either way we're going to die. If we stay here, we're not going to eat anything, we're going to die. So why don't we go to the Aramean camp and maybe they'll give us some food. And if they kill us, well, we're going to die anyway. So they figured that that made sense, actually. So they pick up and they go to the Aramean camp. And what do they find? Nothing. There's no people there and tons of food all over the place. They can't believe it. So they start just like eating their fill and, you know, like taking stuff for themselves, like despoiling the camp, you know, like, and then all of a sudden it hits one of them. You know something? This is fantastic news that's just happened. And if, if by tomorrow, by tomorrow, the, I, I guess, they don't say this explicitly, but this was explained to me by someone. Tomorrow the sun's going to come up and everyone's going to see the miracle that was made. And, but, who knows what's going on in the camp right now? People could be dying from hunger right now. Like, 
if, 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 if we don't go and share the good news, like we'll be judged as sinners. Now, to me, this is a really interesting part of this story. Because if I were writing this, I would say, you have the big miracle, everyone retreats and runs away, and there's your happy ending, right? Like, you don't expect there to be more story than that. That's the climactic moment in this story, and then it should end right there. But, but, but amazingly, what you have here is something that, because think about all the people in the city. There is now no army surrounding them. There is now tons of food surrounding them, and they don't know. Now, this is a great example of a Talmudic principle, which might surprise you, which is that at a time a miracle is being done for someone, the person hardly ever knows about it. You would think to me, I would think that, well, especially if you're a more spiritually inclined person, oh, if a miracle were done for me, I would certainly know it. This is what I think most people would think. And yet, what's the reality? Here, a miracle, a massive miracle was being done, and no one was aware of it. So how much more so in your own life? You know, like the example that I, I tend to think of is you're driving in your car and you're stuck in a traffic jam, Right? And you're so angry. How do you know at that moment God isn't saving your life? How do you know? So you, you, you should think like that. You should think like that. And, and, and don't be afraid if at that moment He isn't saving your life because He's also making your heart beat. So He's always saving your life. But I'm just talking about an extra level right now. So you don't have to be afraid of being, perhaps of being too grateful to God at this moment. You never have to worry about that, okay? So, so anyway, the point is that, interestingly, God makes this big miracle, and now the ball is in the court of these four mitzvahim. Because they now have the ability to really help save the lives of who knows who's dropping dead from hunger in the city at this point, Right? And also to deliver the news. And also the king has to know this, you know, all, all the rest. And what's so interesting also is, again, you know, it says in Perke Avos, there is no person without his moment. There is no person without their moment. Don't, don't ever, ever fall into a state of arrogance where you look at another person and think that person has no role in this world. Chas v'shalom, God forbid. Never, ever dare allow yourself to have such a thought. It doesn't matter who it is. You know, Mitzorim, people who are afflicted with saras, at that moment, those people you wouldn't imagine, like, oh, I'm going to this fancy banquet dinner. Oh, look at the people on the dais, on the high table, on the stage. All of them, their faces are covered in this peely, white, weird skin. You know what I mean? Like, someone with saras would not be the honored guest at a place, you know? I mean, you know, if you think of the classic... Leper situation, they'd be, you know, with a, with a bell ringing, like, get away from me. You know what I mean? So, and yet, right now, the fate of the Jewish people are in the hands of these four mitzvahs. That's the point. 
That's the point. Even amidst their affliction, you say, okay, so maybe, maybe, you know, back when I was whatever age and I had whatever in the bank, then maybe I could have made a contribution. No! You're talking about people at their low point right now being absolutely the most necessary critical people in the entire world at this moment. Okay? So, you know, don't be quick to judge yourself. You could be exactly at the right place at the right time. And, you know, sometimes I hear people say, I, I you know, I'm, I'm, I'm so ugly or something like this. And it's sort of like, you know, you're not ugly. You might feel ugly, but that doesn't mean you are ugly. You know what I mean? How a person feels about themselves doesn't necessarily correlate with the reality of the situation. You know, you have to be very careful about that, to separate, to separate your emotions about something and what the reality is. You know? This is why it's so important to say nice things to other people. And we'll get back to the story in a moment, but I just, as long as we're talking about saras, I want to, I want to just make this point which is that someone could have tsaras, this, this, again, this spiritual malady which manifests itself on a physical level, and it's 100% tsaras, okay? It's not like maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I'm talking about a case where it is, okay? But it is not called tsaras until the Kohen looks at it and says, this is tsaras. In other words, un- until it's pronounced as such, it isn't that which means that through words, in this instance, the Kohen, but, but the point is, get to the inner essence of this, through words, the reality is created. You have another very compelling example of that in terms of dream interpretation. It says in Gomorrah Brochas that how you interpret a dream is how, how, that, how it becomes manifest in the world. In other words, if you, if you give a dream a positive interpretation... That's a blessing for that to become a reality. And if you give it a negative interpretation, the negativity can become a reality. So it goes by how you interpret it. So, so, so the point is, is that people are constantly trying to make this, um, <clears throat> to sort out their feelings and to sort out, and to make this line between what they feel and what's real, right? I feel ugly, but you're not. That's true. I'm not. But I feel that way. But the way you feel isn't necessarily the reality. So how can I, how can you help me create this balance so that I can see things clearly as they are and not allow my emotions to overshadow the reality of the situation? So one way that you can help people with that is by saying positive things to each other. Because if you say to someone, I'm so happy to see you, you look great, then in their mind they go, I look great. (laughs) Perhaps I don't look terrible. Right? And then that actually influences the way they will interpret reality. So words are not just words. This is the whole thing that's coming out from the Mitzorah. Words are not just words. You're you're helping to shape reality for people. Okay? Now, remember, just, just so you understand the, 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 full, the fullness of this, it says that when Hashem created the world, He did it 
with ten utterances. God spoke the world into creation. He spoke the world into creation. And Reb Shlomo says he, he sang the world into creation. But the point is, again, words, words creating perceptions which are creating realities. I'll give you one more example, and then I want to go back into this, the, the Haftorah. But if there was someone who were in the room, say, right? Someone entered the room, and, or, or was sitting in the room, or whatever it is, and they looked like you're a classic, you know, homeless person, right? And then you look at them and go, you know, person's homeless, you know? And then I came up to you and I say, listen, I want you to know, I know that guy. He has $10 million in the bank. You would go, oh, he's an eccentric genius. You would not look at him as a homeless person anymore. He's an eccentric genius. I wonder, you know, I should go over and say hello to him, you know? Who knows, maybe he'll like my idea, get into business together. I'm a little eccentric. I'm not that eccentric, but I'm, you know, so... So all of a sudden, you're... But... Whatever you hear, your perception influences the reality, and the words influence your perception. So in other words, you're creating realities with words. The person has gone from a homeless person to an eccentric genius in one sentence, right? So, So look at the power of words, okay? Okay, now, now again... If you remember, inside the camp, the, the Navi Elisha, the prophet Elisha said, tomorrow, tomorrow you're going to get food, right? Like today, like you'd have to give up, who knows, your, your whole bank account for a loaf of bread. Tomorrow you're going to get whatever you want for pennies. And people thought he's crazy, right? How can you say such a thing? You mean reality can change like on a dime? Right? Is that possible? Is it true? And um, and it is. It is true. It is true. And and we we have a beautiful example of it from from the Vilna Gon. He he says in Psalm 121. And, and this word, it means that, uh, you know, a song of ascents, I, I look up into the mountains, uh, that, now that's a, the, the letter mem is a prefix in Hebrew, it means from, from, it's translated, is translated here, from where will my help come? So I look up to the mountains, from where will my help come? It's a, it's a, just it's like a, a an awesome like sigh from the soul like oh god i i have no idea like where's my salvation going to come from right but the vilna gon says this word may ayin mem means from ayin means nothing from nowhere out of nowhere the the help is going to come in other words god can make it come from out of nowhere absolutely out of nowhere so so again just so we're in tune with the dynamics, dynamics of, of, of what, what I think the, the Haftar is bringing out, and we're going to develop this thought further. I want you to see that, that God made a miracle out of nowhere. The prophet Elisha says, tomorrow you're going to eat no problem whatsoever. 
They're in the middle of this protracted siege. How could it be? How could that possibly be? And sure enough, God makes this miracle. The whole army flees. All of a sudden, there's tons and tons of supplies. Out of nowhere. Out of nowhere. And yet, no one knows. (laughs) So, So God can make a miracle, and yet then he says, okay, now the ball's in your court. Amazing. So they go and they tell the king. And the king says, remember, as, as far as I know, it's still nighttime right now. Here's the Mitzorim coming in to tell, tell you that all of a sudden the, the, the enemy is vanquished. Also, what's interesting about this, also now that I think about it, is this thunderous noise that was loud enough to make an entire essentially victorious army because they had completed the siege, right? So it's just a matter of time before they vanquished the Jewish people. This victorious army, how loud must that noise have been? How convincing must that noise have been to make an entire army that's about to be victorious get up and leave, with leaving all their stuff behind? What's the point? The Jewish people didn't hear any of it. Interesting, no? They, they didn't hear any of it. That must have been a terrifying loud sound, right? They didn't hear anything. So, so what is the king's reaction when he hears that, um, that, that the army's no there, not there? He says, it's a trap. You want us to open up our gates and to come out, and then they're going to swoop in and kill us all. So... That's kind of rough, right? Again, what does the Talmud say? That at the time a miracle is done for someone, they don't even, they're not even aware of it. I mean, it's hard to find a better example of that Talmudic principle than right here. So someone, thank God, is brave enough to, I'm sure he was extremely respectful in the way he did it, but to contradict the king and say, whatever his words were, however he said it, he said it very beautifully since the king accepted his words, said, you know, maybe it's worth just checking out just in case it's true. And so they, uh, the king says, okay. And so they, they send out some, some, uh, some forces or whatever it is, and they see it's true. So again, can you imagine if that person didn't speak up? Now all of a sudden it's gone from these four people who are inhabiting the lowest rung of society, right? And, and, and coming in to talk to the king. And now it's down to one person because the king doesn't want to budge out of his walls, right? And so this person, thank God, has the chutzpah or the self-esteem or, you know, the, whatever it is to, to be able to say it and to say it in a professional way. You know, maybe we should take a look. And, 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 and there's a happy ending. So, so, I want to, I want to develop this. And by the way, just as a PS, remember if, from the beginning of this, Alicia said that, that food is going to cost pennies and this person who questioned it that he said, and you're not going to see it. 
And when the people heard about the food, you, you can imagine, you know, unfortunately, how, how desperate the people were for food. They, they ran as fast as they could to get to the food. And this person was trampled to death. So, so Elisha's words came true on, on that end as well. Um, anyway, so, so they, they say, by the way, again, another, uh, uh, the Talmud also points out that even the casual curse of a Talmud Chacham, of a very great person, ends up happening. That even if he didn't necessarily mean to be cursing him at the time, Nonetheless, you see that, that that aspect was fulfilled. So again, that's just a question to us that we should all be very careful with our, with our words. Um, anyway, so, so I want to give you a, an example uh, from, from my life and just to, again, zero in on this dynamic between miracles happening and yet the ball then being in our court, because, <clears throat> you know, probably just to give you one more example from the Torah, probably the most famous example of this dynamic is the sea doesn't split until Nachshon jumps in. And then the sea splits. So, I, I just think this is really worth thinking about for a moment because, because it's sort of like God is constantly putting the ball back into our court. And it's, I think that there is a, um, an unfortunate aspect of the religious personality that just wants God to do it. God you're running the world anyway. You made the whole world anyway. You do it. That's why I'm believing in you, because I want you to do it. But there's a very faint whisper where God says, right, yes, and then I want you to do it. <laughs> and it's sort of like, you don't want to hear that part. No one wants to hear that part. But if you actually look at our tradition and what the texts are saying, it really looks like, I mean, what greater miracle of God is there? It's the classic miracle. Probably if you, you know, on Family Feud, the number one answer. What's the greatest miracle ever? The splitting of the Red Sea. And yet, what do our rabbis tell us? That first Nakshin jumped in and almost drowned before the sea split. It, it's just, it, it just looks like, you know, you know, and... and You've got, to, you've got to pick up the phone and you've got to make that call. You'd rather jump out the window than make that call. But you know what? You've got to make that call. And believe me, I'm talking to myself. Believe me, I'm talking to myself. You know? You know, because that's... You know, if you want to translate everything that I'm saying into one sentence, it's pick up, write the email. Make the call. Because that's what it, unfortunately, I say unfortunately, but just because it's hard. But that's what it seems to boil down to. So I'll give you one more example, even though I think the point has probably been made already. But 
which is, uh, this is, we were, the Happy Minion were, you know, Idavan, they have, uh, we were switching places for Rosh Hashanah for the new year, uh, and, and, you know, to, to set up a whole service in another building, it's, it's not so simple. And one of the things that you need is you need a place to put the Torah scroll, the, the, the ark. And then, you know, it doesn't have to be so fancy, but you actually, it's, it's a piece of furniture. You, you need some place to put it. And, uh, you know, it was a few days before Rosh Hashanah. It was Slichos night. And, uh, you know, a couple of the guys were talking and saying, well, we, we need, it's called an Aron HaKodesh. That's, that's how you say it in Hebrew, but it's the place to put the Torah scroll. We need an Aron. And then the next moment, someone walks into the room who hadn't heard that and said, do you guys need an Aron HaKodesh? And it, that is a miracle. That's an outright miracle because I can tell you, I, people don't walk around asking people that question, much less at that moment, literally right after they said, we need an arm. I mean, it's, it was from God. So that should be the end of the story, right? So here's the end of the story. We got it. They, they, they gave it to us, and, and it was set up in shul and everything like that, and it was really like minutes before the service was about to start, and of course, there are certain forms of labor that you can't do once the holiday starts and things like that, so, so you know, once the holiday starts, everything has to be in place. And so they bring the Torah down, and they open up this ark that we had just been given, and there are all sorts of shelves inside. No one had opened it up. And it's impossible to, you can't put anything large in it, much less a Torah scroll. And it's not like sliding out kind of shelves. These shelves were fused into the piece of furniture. And there's about 10 minutes before the holiday's about to start. And they rush it out, and the people who are the, the custodians there have hammers, and they're hammering away at these things, like trying to smash it out because it's securely in it. It's like, and they were able to actually smash the shelves out and to take the shelves out in time before the holiday so that the Torah could fit into the thing. So here you have an example where an outright miracle took place and yet massive effort was still required under very... Tense circumstances. So, so now I, I want to take this now to the to the next step. Okay, let's just review what we've said, and then I want to to show you how to hopefully one way anyway to to integrate this. In terms of a worldview and 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 and, and a vision for for life, okay. So. So again, the point is that everything can change in a moment. Everything can change in a moment. You had a massive siege, a city like the Jewish people were starving to death, and in a moment, it was changed. In a moment, it was changed. Like the Vilna Gon says, may ayin, 
from nowhere, out of nowhere, it will happen. Right? Um, and yet, at the same time, you also have this, 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 this amazing thing where God will do a miracle and yet ask us then to complete the miracle, if you will. That it's up to us to complete the miracle through our own effort. And that, that this is true even for the greatest miracle ever. God put the ball back in our court. So, so we can't allow ourselves to be lazy or scared or intimidated in the disguise of being religious. This is the, this is like, that's like the Kutsk moment, you know? Um, the Kutsker didn't say that, but I'm using it as an adjective right now. That's the Kutsk moment, meaning to say that's the, you know, let's be real. A lot of people, they, they know that they have to make that call, but under the guise of being religious, they go, oh, well, God's going to save me. It's not real. It's not real. That's not real religion. That's not real avodas Hashem. It isn't. And it's hard. It's hard. And we're not always up to the task. That's the reality. But let's not pretend we're being religious at that moment if we're being cowards. I'm speaking to myself, believe me. Okay. So now, I just want to give you two more examples about how things can change in a moment. And then we'll take it to the next step. And there are two examples that are coming from uh, modern Israel right now. And that I think are very amazing and wonderful. One is, if you've been following uh, the, uh, the news, you know that uh, just a few weeks ago, um, the uh, Israeli government uh, pulled off a, just this massive accomplishment, massive, which is that, that there were tremendous, huge natural gas deposits found off the coast of Israel. And actually oil deposits too, but it's, it's mostly natural gas. And there are two fields, one called the Tamar one and one called the Leviathan. And they, they're both enormous, enormous, world-class natural gas uh, deposits. And I saw that under the Leviathan one, which is way larger than the Tamar one, that when you've got a natural gas deposit that large, there's something like, I, I don't know how I remember this number, but there's something like a 17% chance that there's an oil reserve underneath that. Now, I, I read that a few years ago, so I don't know if they know yet, even, whether it's there or not. But if there's that large of a, of a uh, natural gas, at least as, a few, as of a few years ago, they, there is a chance 
that there is a massive oil deposit under that. So the good news might, so there still might be more good news in terms of what these holdings actually are yet. I don't know that that question was answered yet. But just in terms of what we know is there, that alone is an enormous blessing, enormous blessing, enormous. And, you know, they actually, as of Pesach this year, just a, just a couple of weeks ago, finished the, the uh, pipeline and they started actually getting the gas in reality. Now, it's not just like, oh, we discovered it. No, they now are getting the gas from the Tamar Reserve Field. Now, as of now, it's been happening. So this is, so Israel's going to go from being a nat- natural gas importer, meaning that they have to buy it, they don't have their needs met, to they, they're going to have, we have, we're going to have so much, we're going to be able to export it. So just think about that in terms of politics for a moment. Not only are we not going to be reliant on that for, from other countries and often hostile nations, we're actually going to have this amazing bargaining chip, right, in terms of making peace and, 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 and all sorts of wonderful things that can come from this to be able to provide it for other countries. As significant, perhaps in some ways more significant than that, Water is a very, very big issue in the Middle East because there isn't a lot of it. There isn't a lot of drinking water. Now, there is a lot of water, but in the whole world, there's very little drinking water in the world, you should know. Like something like 90 plus percent of the world's water is salt water. You can't drink it, right? Except that the Israeli government has completed a desalinization plant, right? They've come up with a super high-tech way to turn seawater, salt water, into drinking water, which is more difficult than it sounds. And now, all of a sudden, they're going to be able to supply huge amounts of water, not just for us, but for potentially other countries as well. That's incredibly valuable. This is, this, is, this is amazing stuff. This is amazing stuff, believe me. We haven't even begun to see the implications and the impact of the two pieces of information that I just told you, because they're new. The desalinization plan hasn't kicked in yet, but it's about to. And the, and the, and the oil and the natural gas reserves have kicked in. Okay? So, so the point is, is that all of a sudden, things are different. <laughs> you know? Things are different. And I'll tell you something, like, very cool. In the Torah, it says that before Moshe died, Moshe really wanted to go into the land of Israel, as everyone knows. So, but he doesn't get in. So, Hashem says to him, look, go up to Har Nivo, this mountain, and I want you to be able to stand up there and look all around. At least you're going to be able to see the land. Now, if you look at the Rashi there, Rashi says something that I remember when I read it years ago, it always stuck in my mind because it seems like such a peculiar thing for Rashi to be mentioning, like at that moment. At that moment, he's looking at the vastness of the land. He wants to get in there so badly, he can't, but oh, there it is. So what does Rashi say of all things? The whole point is that he's seeing the land itself, right? So listen to this Rashi. Rashi says that God granted him prophecy 
that he should see under the ground and all of the treasures under the ground. Interesting. A.K.A. Israel has oil. (laughs) That's how I understand it, right? I mean, there are many other things there. But right now we're talking about oil. So, so anyway, anyway. Um, <laughs> well, God reveals everything in the proper moment. Um, okay. So now, that's actually the point that, that I want to transition to, which is, when does this get revealed? How does it get revealed? In other words, here are these salvations, and we're saying that God can make these salvations happen at any moment. Now the question is, how do I get that to happen for me? So, so all of these salvations are built into the world. And I'm going to give you an example of this, a couple of examples of this, okay? God way. One of them is the following. It says in Pirkei Avos, it's uh, in chapter 5, uh, verse uh, Mishnah number 8, if you, if you want to see it, it talks about the things that were made right before the very first Shabbos of creation. All sorts of interesting, miraculous things, okay? Like the rainbow from the time of Noah and the, and, the, and the pit that opened up that swallowed up Korah and his army and the mouth of the donkey that, that spoke with Bilaam, okay? All, all sorts of things that were created, like right at the very end of the sixth day of creation before God created Shabbos, the rest day where, okay, seemingly creation was now complete, he squeezed in a few very interesting, amazing things. One of the things that's mentioned is um, the ram that Avraham Avinu sacrificed instead of Isaac. All right? So you say, well, wait a second. Okay. First of all, there's a lot of different ways. How do you even begin to understand that, what that means exactly? Was it this ram that was actually, you know, a thousand, two thousand years old? Like a two thousand year old ram that's just been like, Walking around since then is that one way of understanding? Maybe that's one way of understanding. Another way of understanding is that you no, know, it was it, God had it in mind at that moment to create it. Or I even saw that it was a reincarnation. <laughs> you know, it's which by an animal is like you don't usually see those two things together. So I, it's so anyway. You've got all sorts of uh, different explanations, but it doesn't really matter for our purposes right now. The point is, is that, is that, is that. Abraham has put Yitzchak on this altar, right? And he raises the knife. He's absolutely going to do God's will. And then God says, don't do it. I just wanted to see if you were going to do it. Don't do it. And then they hear a rustling in the, in the thicket over there. And then they see that it's a ram. And then Abraham says, okay, I'm going to sacrifice this ram. And that will be instead of Yitzchak. Okay, so here's my question. You see that this moment has been orchestrated, like, oh, there's a ram over there. Well, there's not just a ram over there. That ram God had had in mind when he created the world. From the the beginning moments of the creation of the world, God had that ram 
implanted, ready to go, right there. That's the point, okay? But here's my question. What if Avraham hadn't been up to the test to sacrifice Yitzchak? What would have happened to that ram? That ram would have died of old age, right? And that would have been it. What you mean? There was something that was there, that was implanted in creation from the beginning of time, literally. Literally from the beginning of time. And it was just never used. Because Abraham didn't rise to the level where he could access that which had been made ready for him and had been implanted for him. So that got me thinking, well, what about all the things that God has put into this world for me? And they're just waiting there for me. But I have to rise to the level in order to be able to access those things that already exist, that are already there for me. Let's just take another moment. Abraham could have thought, oh, look how I'm not going to sacrifice Isaac, but look how God can change it in a moment. Snap my fingers. There's, there's a ram. Perfect. And I don't have to chase after it. I don't have to catch it. It's, it's caught right there, just waiting for me. Look how in a moment God changes everything. Oh, well, wait a second. No, no, no. Abraham, that's, that was readied for you 2,000 years ago. Approximately. You know, all of a sudden, it's like, oh, and then you know, and then you know who I sat next to on the airplane? No, that may have been all planned out from before you were born. But you had to be in a place where you lived your life in such a way that you got on that plane. So, I mean, just to make it, give you another example from the Torah, Hagar is sent from Abraham's house. She's like dying of thirst. And then it says, God opened up her eyes and she saw that there was a well right there. doesn't say God created the well. God opened up her eyes and she saw the well that was there. That's pretty humbling that sometimes our salvations can be right next to us, right around us. But it says all are blind until God opens up your eyes. But sometimes a person needs a merit in order to merit to have their eyes opened. And so, so, so Abraham imagined to get to that ram. That ram was the solution to the 10th test or a key moment in the 10th test. But he's got to go through 10 tests to rise to that ram. That was a lot of work. It was a lot of work to get to that 10th test, to get to that ram. 
a lot of believing, a lot of working, a lot of trying, a lot of, you know, disregarding his own ego, humbling himself, digging down. A lot, a lot. So, so let me just wrap it up and and say that that God is always putting the ball back into our court, even when He's making miracles, and that God has already implanted amazing things in creation for us, amazing salvations for us. And and we have to rise to the occasion. We have to rise to the occasion. And we can't allow ourselves to, to mistake religiosity for just being afraid to confuse those two things. In other words, to, to say, okay, God, you're going to do it, and I'm being religious when we know that we have to do it at that moment. And, uh, and not to be afraid. And not to be afraid, because that, that's usually the last gate that we have to pass through. You know? Meaning to say that... Um, if we ask and the person says no, we think that we, like, disappear. We will existentially just cease to exist. <laughs> and you know what? If the person says no, you know what the, the sad slash happy truth is? The world is going to look remarkably the same. <laughs> and what we imagine, what we imagine is that all of a sudden the sun is going to blot itself out and, you know... Huge waves are going to rise from the sea and crash down on skyscrapers, killing millions. No. No. Unfortunately not. Things are going to pretty much be the same. And yet, you'll have, you'll have, you'll have accomplished something. Because, because the truth is, is that even a no is a yes. Because if you made the effort, it's the effort. God controls the results. He wants to see us make the effort. And if you made the effort, even if you got a no back, that effort is infinitely precious. That effort is infinitely precious. And it empowers us and emboldens us to make the next call, which could be a yes. Or the call after that, which could be a yes. And so, uh, let's just roll up our sleeves and get to work and, 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 and access, like turn on all the oil wells that are like all waiting to be tapped by us, right? And to, to share and access all that goodness with, with, with each other in the whole world.